Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins partners Marcus Funk and Chelsea Kerfman speak with Arpinder Singh, a partner with EY Forensics and Integrity Services and head of their India and Emerging Markets group. Topics discussed include internal investigation trends in India, the recent increase in whistleblower reports and how companies are responding, and investigative tips on how companies and outside counsel can best investigate potential wrongdoing, including where to look for potentially relevant data. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Hi, this is Chelsea Kerfman, partner at Perkins Coie's White Collar and Investigations Practice, and I am joined today by my colleague Marcus Funk and our guest Arpinder Singh, who is a partner and head of India and Emerging Markets for Ernst & Young in India. It's nice to have you here today, Arpinder. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you, Marcus. And great to see you again. And I know, Arpinder, today we're going to be talking a bit about some trends that we're seeing in internal investigations in India, especially from your end at EY. But before we jump into that, can you just give a quick summary of your role and your practice? Yes, absolutely. In our forensic practice, we have about a thousand people in India. It's It was very small about a few years back, but I think in the last seven, eight years with increased governance, issues coming to the surface, I think our practice has fortunately grown. And I think there's a lot of recognition of the fact that there's a cleanup required and the fact that the government is working hard to also make sure governance levels, new policies, new rules, laws come out. So I think there's a lot of uh, healthy tension, I would say, between auditors, companies, directors, government, which is bringing right practices to the fore. So I think a lot happening in India and the emerging markets and happy to share some of those today. That would be great. In fact, that's probably my next question for you is as a big picture, one of the things we wanted to talk about today are some of the trends that you're seeing. And full disclosure for anyone listening, uh, Marcus and I have worked with Arpinder and, and his several of his colleagues in India on a number of investigations there. And, and they really help kind of get into the weeds of all the data and the company's information. And so you, you are in a good position to kind of see those trends. So I'm curious what you're noticing, both in terms of kind of issues that have been popping up, or maybe if there's a change of what types of issues you're seeing in internal investigations in the last few years. Absolutely. Uh, so as, as I mentioned, you know, there's been an increase in issues, large issues coming to the surface in the last five, six years, actually. It started with a large technology scam which happened in 2008-2009 in India and subsequent to that I think there was more increased awareness of fraud. I remember going to clients earlier and saying, hey, do you have any frauds in your company? And there was a sense of denial before that. Oh, there are no frauds. You know, we have no issues. We have no whistleblowing complaint, by the way, in the last 10 years. You know, those are the type of comments you heard. And then slowly the the trajectory increased. In the last five years, there's been huge amount of noise in the uh, newspapers around non-performing assets, for instance, the banking sector. And if you look at the banking sector, it kind of encompasses clients, right? Because banks pay loans or give loans to companies, companies potentially take that money out, invest in real estate, lose that money in real estate, can't pay the loan back. So the fraud starts like that. 
I think in the last five, six years, the government has really made the prudential norms, accounting uh, provisions tighter, which has brought a lot of these issues to the surface. As a result of which, you know, a lot of evergreening used to happen earlier, which means basically uh, you take a loan from one bank and pay off another bank and then take a loan from a third bank and pay off the fourth bank. I think that was tightened, obviously, with a lot of increased scrutiny. And the number of bank issues which have come out in the media in the last few years, uh, you have uh, CEOs or large owners of non-banking financial companies who are today sitting in jail. So I think that is one big trend I'm seeing where there's a big cleanup of the banking system happening as we talk. Uh, The second big trend I'm seeing is a lot of uh, uh, tension between auditors and companies and directors because the right questions are being asked, you know. So uh, we have in India the Companies Act, which was finally revised. It's called uh, in 2013, but was really effective from 2015. And that brought a lot of onus on directors to be held responsible for a number of actions. And with some of the scams, I think the government has gone after independent directors and directors and has not really differentiated between them. Due to which there's a lot more onus on directors to ask the right questions or maybe probe. And I think that has brought that healthy tension to the surface. Also, auditors have been forced to comment on fraud in a company. They call it the company's auditor's report where they give a true and fair statement. That has been revised again in 2020. So if COVID hadn't happened, all auditors in India would have had to sign off from on March 2020. And actually the number of points they had to comment on regarding whistleblower complaints, fraud, has, I would say, gone up five times. They had to comment on something which is called Benami transactions. So Benami, just for the global audience, means shell companies, basically. So in India, people, you know, when they want to move money around, they create layers, you know, one layer, two layers, three layers through shell companies. And the Indian name is Benami. So India came out with the Benami Act to stop some of that bad practice. And the auditors now have to comment on that. The auditors also have to comment on uh, loans taken from banks. Is there any misutilization happening? Are interests not being accounted for properly? Or are payments not happening at the right time? A huge number of questions. So auditors now have to certify a lot of that stuff, which is which was turning bad. So as you can imagine, uh, because of COVID, it was pushed out by a year. So it's going to be effective actually from April 2020 and till March 2021. And I cannot even visualize the amount of uh, tension which will happen. But Marcus had a question, so I... Very interesting development, particularly on the auditing side and essentially having to disclose, it sounds like to the regulators or enforcers, if you identify any fraud or other misconduct, would you say that the auditing standards in India, once they're in place, are more strict than in the United States? Or are they similar or, or are they looser? I I would say in practice, they are similar because I see some of my colleagues in the US and I think all whistleblowing complaints are highlighted to the statutory auditor. I think the auditors do shadow investigations. I think now India is becoming similar to that. There's a guidance note and happy to share that with anybody in the audience who would like a copy of that. that. That's pretty prescriptive and tells you exactly what the do's and don'ts are. And I think, so I think it's becoming similar. It was never like that, Marcus, earlier. If you got a whistleblowing complaint, the company says, oh, it's not a big deal. We've sorted it out. You'll kind of move on. But I think those days are over. We've got a kind of US way of dealing with the complaints. And you're right. Uh, The number of complaints which have gone to the Indian government with auditors not satisfied with the company's investigation or a company's response has, I think, gone up by double. And I I also thought it was interesting, Arpinder, when you were talking about how directors of companies are now, you know, 
really in the hot seat and they have to ask the difficult questions. And we've seen that with U.S. or multinational companies where the local Indian entity has its own directors. And those directors now suddenly are kind of having to answer some of these more difficult questions. And that has, at least from what we've seen, that's that's shifted the degree of attention that these multinational companies are placing on the Indian entities. But I'm, I'm curious if you've seen a similar change through your work, specifically in the multinational company setting. Absolutely. I think it's quite complicated, actually, because they are multinationals who have entities in India, which are actually listed on the stock exchange in India. And then you have companies who have uh, joint ventures in India. And then you have companies which are just uh, wholly owned subsidiaries in India, which are private companies. So you have a multitude of companies. And I think the ones which are most complicated are the listed ones because they have to comply with the stock exchange regulations. At the same time, if you have a large U.S. company which believes in keeping whistleblower complaints anonymous or privileged in the U.S., which I think brings up a big controversial point, then the Indian auditor says you've got to share all whistleblowing complaints and investigations with me. But you have a privileged document. Let's say you have an FCPA case or a foreign corrupt practices case. How much can you share with the Indian auditor without losing privilege? especially in a listed company. I find at least a few I've done uh, brings out a lot of tension for a U.S. parent with an Indian company. And then there are directors in India who think that they are responsible. So they want to be fully in charge. They want to see all the complaints. They want to see the details. And then the U.S. lawyer, Chelsea yourself, would tell them, no, I'm not going to share anything with you. And then the director says, hell no, you know, I have to sign the director's report. So if I'm going to sign the director's report in India, I want to see everything. So that does bring tension. But I think a good median ground I've seen with with clients is where you share some relevant bits where the director feels comfortable without compromising your privileged documents. But I guess, Chelsea, that's where you guys are the experts. You're right. I am usually the one that's doing that. <laughs> I, I'm, it's typically me that, that's making that privileged argument. Well, Ian, you, you mentioned the FCPA, and I do want to ask you about, you know, corruption cases and corruption trends in India in particular, because I think for most of us in the U.S., if we're involved in an, an investigation in India, it's probably foreign corruption related. You know, in, in that field, what areas are you seeing? Because I understand that, you know, how and when bribes are paid has has changed over time in India, and that maybe they're not as, as common as they used to be, but they're still sort of risky areas. You know, from your perspective, where are you seeing corruption is, is still kind of the biggest risk for companies? No, that's a great question, Chelsea. So before I answer that, I'd like to add one point on bribery and corruption. So one big change has been that bribery and corruption is now included in the definition of fraud. So fraud was never defined in India. So fraud finally has a place in the Companies Act where it's defined very broadly. And in that definition, the Institute of Chartered Accountants has clarified in the guidance note that bribery and corruption is included in fraud. Because I don't think auditors historically used to focus that much on FCPA or money laundering because the main focus was true and fair statements. So I think now with the definition happened, I think bribery and corruption finally is getting its relevant importance, I would say, at the board level beyond obviously the regulatory concerns. So I think that's one big question. Now, what are the trends I'm seeing? I think unfortunately, India hasn't really improved on Transparency International. You know, we're still around 80. If you look at the rankings for the last five years, even though we've become much better on the World Bank Index of, you know, doing business in India, but the Transparency International indices, whether it's the CPI or the Bright Pairs Index, our rankings haven't improved. And I think the main reason for that, the number of laws in India which companies have to comply with are still as many. They're fairly complicated. And I think 
the unfortunate problem is that companies haven't got rid of their old practices. So I think we still see bribery issues happening. I think companies don't still have a handle of all their licenses. They still have to deal with it. They're still trying to take shortcuts. Unfortunately, I think the COVID situation has brought this risk include uh, to even become bigger. Because I can tell you right now, the government's being a little, you know, easy on companies. Now I've seen, I've at least informally heard of some companies saying, you know, let's take a shortcut. After six months, one year, when COVID is over, we'll come back and, uh, you know, look at it. But I think people forget that compliance doesn't go away. If you're doing a transaction today, you're going to get caught one year later and you're going to have Marcus and yourself sitting in their office asking them, what did you do in May or June of 2020? And the excuse cannot be COVID. Because I don't think anyone's giving anybody the right to do wrong things because of the COVID situation. But I think people are struggling, uh, you know, even a simple thing like, you know, getting permissions in India to go to work during COVID when there's a lockdown, you need government permissions. As simple as that. Or, you know, moving your uh, product around in a lockdown situation in India from one city or one state to another requires permissions. Now, we all know when there's government interaction, what the risks and pitfalls can be. I also think, you know, unfortunately, people compromise on background checks and some of the good practices. And, and I still don't see a lot of background checks happening in India. You know, multinationals also, to be honest, do a very superficial, high level, you know, check done through some online tool. And in India, first, the main drives, if you look at it, Chelsea, are paid by smaller companies. You'll never have a large company in India being used as a middleman. You know, if you want to pay a bribe, you're going to get a small company in a nondescript location who you're going to pay money to and who's going to pay the money. So your exposure is a small third party. And if you do an online check through background checks, you're not going to get anything on that small company. So unfortunately, that risk continues. I think there's a lot of business with government and though government, uh, you know, doesn't support uh, getting middlemen. But unfortunately, that risk continues in India. People still have middlemen who, uh, you know, act as license agents. So I think that exposure is continuing. So I would say the old traditional licensing is still a risk out there. Uh, licenses for factory, licenses to operate, getting government business, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, getting contracts from the government, etc. You still have an exposure through these license agents and middlemen, even though the government is doing a good job of clamping up. But I think that risk is still there. I think CSR risk, we just did a survey around, uh, you know, CSR. I think that is increasing because the government has become very tight on the fact that you have to spend a certain amount of money every year on CSR, corporate social responsibility. Now that is being used by some companies, I feel, to say, oh, we have to pay this money. So they end up in March just running around, which is the end of the year, and pay some third party some money. Now, no good practices, no checking, who's this company, who's you give this charity to. So I think that part of exposure for bribery and corruption through CSR activity indirectly, and we all know that how charity money can be sometimes misused, uh, I think is again becoming a risk. And especially in COVID, everyone is hiding behind CSR. and. You can't say no, right? If someone's saying I'm going to pay a hospital or if someone's saying I'm going to pay something for migrant workers who are stuck, no one's going to ask a question. But one year later, you will have an issue. And last point, Chelsea, I must add, I think unfortunately with employee attrition and the churn happening with employees across India, you know, there are a lot of workers, they say they, there was some newspaper article which said 100, 100 million people are looking for jobs in India, which is huge numbers, which means people have lost their job. People are maybe getting salary cuts. People are under stress. What's leading to is, the good thing is, 
I think when they leave the company, they're a little disgruntled. So number of whistleblower complaints around bribery and corruption are significantly increasing. I've got so many clients I'm working with who have just seen a doubling of the whistleblowing complaints in the COVID time because, you know, people are not happy. But the sad part is obviously they should have come out with it, you know, two years back. But they're obviously when they're unhappy or uh, losing their job is when they really find the right opportunity to uh, bring out the issue. But the reality is whether the issue has been brought out with a bad malice or not, I don't know. I would love to hear Marcus and your comments, but I think you still have to investigate it, right? Irrespective of what the rationale may be. Well, we've certainly seen the trend you're describing, which is a a spike in, in whistleblower complaints in India. One of the things you just touched on, Arpinder, is something that I know is very near and dear to our hearts, and that is background checks. And in particular, what we perceive as the weaknesses of these desktop exercises, these online tools, uh, that might work well in Frankfurt, but it may not work that well in Hyderabad or some other place. And so one of the questions that you just brought up, or one of the issues you just brought up is, how do you effectively, in your mind, do a background check on, let's say, a, a small or medium company in India? How do you see a robust background check? What does it look like? I think the first one is there are a lot of uh, local Indian databases. For instance, there's a there's a company which actually, there are many companies actually, which now can tell you whether the company has paid its uh, fuel bill or a gas bill or, you know, is paying provident fund to its employees. So you can very quickly check first, is this company actually working or is it a shell company? So if you find that they're paying employees provident fund, which is a government like a social security, or if they're paying their gas bills or they've got electricity bills, uh, even a lot of people are doing geotagging of locations. So I think using technology, but local Indian databases rather than just a global database, which is doing, you know, sanction screening, I think is very useful. Second is, I think there's no shortcut to risk assessing your vendors or third parties to see which are high risk. I think you have to segregate, unfortunately, the ones, what you do for a high risk vendor versus a medium risk. And I define high risk as government facing, you know, large vendor. So I think in those cases, I think, Marcus, there's no shortcut in India. For high risk vendors, you really need to do a site visit. You need to get questionnaires filled up. You need to do some interviews. You need to do a criminal check in India, which is they need a legal case or criminal cases against that particular party uh, what is their reputation in India uh, speak to a few people who work with that company so I think some bit of more exhaustive background check for high-risk vendors and I've always found that the high-risk vendors are generally not more than five to ten percent so it's not that we're talking about a huge population but these high-risk vendors are your biggest exposure the ones who get you your licenses the ones who get you your government contracts the ones who uh, you know are really there who can expose you so I think those you'll have to really do a little bit more manually than a desktop exercise. I mean, that's my honest advice to everybody because every FCPA case I've done, there has been a desktop report and it still happened. Everything you're saying certainly resonates with us, both on the fact that some of these, uh, sometimes these desktop exercises, at least as they're conducted, don't spot the problem. And also that in pretty much every single case, we're, we're not talking about the, the parent company engaging in, you know, grand bribery. It's, it tends to be the small local vendor that's, that's doing something on behalf of maybe a, one of the employees in sales or something and uh, with the parent company's local operations. 
And and Marcus, uh, to add to that, you know, one is to get the licenses, but on the sales side, I think the exposure is pretty high. You know, if you have a tech company, for instance, you know, technology companies never sell directly to customers. They sell through distributors, dealers, resellers, you know, and you have many such industries like that. Alcohol industry, you know, they have multiple layers, three or four layers. So I think in those situations, the risk in India is very high because of the number of states we have in India. And every state, because of local tax reasons, has a different dealer or a different distributor. And I think there again, there's an issue because companies in India try to keep the Chinese wall concept that, hey, I don't know what he's doing. But when a whistleblower complaint comes in and Marcus, you and Chelsea image the computers and you suddenly signed hundreds of emails talking about bribes, etc. There is also a question about dealers and customers. And unfortunately, the problem is all the background checks we talk about always is the vendor side. No one ever talks about background checks on dealers and customers. And I find that's highly ignored. And it's a big risk area as much as the vendor side. And that's something that we, we have certainly seen lately with with a lot of our clients that are having issues with kind of understanding who they're selling to and what those communications look like and ju- just how those transactions are handled. I wanted to touch on something else you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, which is, you know, making use of technology for for background checks and just in general in investigations. And I'm curious, you know, now that we are and we have been, most of the world has been working remotely now for several months, you know, are you seeing a change in how investigations are being conducted if they're being done more remotely? And, you know, what recommendations do you have in terms of making use of technology for that purpose? That's a great question, Chelsea, because... I never realized I could do an investigation without moving out of my house. And it's now happening. And I think, thank God for technology. And I'll tell you four or five changes. You know, earlier we used to use in India a tool called Intella. And you know, it used to be a, a tool where you could actually, it's more a desktop kind of application. So I think everyone's now moving to more web-based applications like Relativity, where you can, uh, you know, have 10 people sitting in their homes looking at uh, documents on Relativity. You don't really need to be in an office any, anymore. That's one uh, change. Second is a remote imaging, you know, where you don't need to actually take a desktop from a person. For many years, I've been telling my tech team, hey, can you do remote imaging? And they always tell me, oh, we can't do it. It doesn't take a full image. It won't be admissible in a court of law. It won't be able to do this. 10 excuses. Now, because we have no option, suddenly the remote imaging becomes great. You know, we are able to image a compute a complete computer. So I think people sitting at homes, their computers, when they're logged in, you can take a complete image pretty quickly using some really cool software out there. And that's the second thing. Third is, thank God to, for ERP systems. Now you have vouchers and everything which are scanned. I would say most of the companies we would deal with that are mid-sized or higher would have good ERP systems where everything is scanned and sitting on you know computers so you can see the vouchers you can see the erp transactions you get access to a company's erp so that's again a third thing which has worked out well fourth is interviews thank god to all the companies which are now worth 50 billion dollars 100 billion dollars that you can do all sorts of you know webexes zooms whatever technology that uh, you prefer and it works out quite well actually doing and i find it so much more efficient because i'm able to focus you know, otherwise I'm spending half my time traveling, half my time sitting in hotel rooms. I feel the quality of my investigation is far superior today than it was maybe a year back. And I'm being honest. I used to spend so much time just on the road. Now I spend much more time reading my briefs. I spend a lot of time going through my investigation report. My team is frustrated with me because I'm spending so much time on the phone with them, asking every line, which I may have not done maybe a year back. So I think 
it i think it's working better of course there are some extreme situations you want to do an inventory count at a warehouse or you know you have a voucher which is lying in a warehouse which you can't get access to because you don't have an erp system so you do have problems but i think with lockdowns partially opening up at least in india i think we are managing to at least get people out there and and uh, getting that information out obviously the only risk now is cyber i mean technically a law firm or a big four accounting firm could also be hacked so you have to be careful but i think thank god that our technology uh, and cyber security is fairly robust but i would say i'm enjoying doing this virtual investigation and i think even if covid goes away which hopefully it will i don't think we're going to go back to the old days of the way we did investigation i think they're going to become much more cost efficient much more virtual obviously if you have the big ones you know we'll all have to fly around but i think for the small basic ones you can do it virtually so you're saying we won't be able to get 100,000 miles by March on United or your favorite carrier. I, I, I agree. I think we've found the same dynamic in terms of interviews and efficiency and, you know, obviously the travel, particularly for us when we, you know, have to travel very large distances. Often our travel exceeds the amount of time we spend on the ground in the country. You know, 20 some hours to get there, you spend, you know, 15 hours there and then you fly back. The one thing that I think we do miss is, is frankly, the flexibility of investigations where, you know, someone in the hallway will say something or during the small talk. I mean, as you know, Arpindra, as an experienced investigator, you know, a lot of the, the magic happens not in the Q&A session, but in the sort of introduction outside and maybe a little chat afterwards. Or you say, okay, on the spur of the moment, let's talk to this other person here. I think those are the things that go missing, among others, but those are some of the things, at least, uh, Chelsea, I'm curious what you feel on this, but at least for me, those are the things that, that I miss more from the actual in-person uh, interviews that are hard to do um, remotely. But other than that, I agree with you. I think uh, from an efficiency standpoint, you know, we can we can do a lot in, in, in less time, frankly. Yeah, and I, I know we've certainly had investigations in the past, Arpinder, where we've worked with some EY colleagues of yours in other countries where they spent weeks in, you know, a warehouse somewhere sorting through paper files, trying to find receipts and, and invoices. And so I think you're right, having that move more online has been incredibly helpful, probably less frustrating for them as well, because they can find what they need without having to look through boxes. But I do agree, Marcus, I think with especially with the interview piece, there is there is a certain aspect that you lose when you're not in person, especially with, you know, when we have strange time zone issues for the interviews, you know, you catch somebody at the end of the day versus the middle of the workday, and, and you don't get quite the same degree of dialogue. But it has been surprisingly effective to do these remotely, I think better than any of us anticipated. No, but Marcus, I fully agree with you. In some cases, you know, you do crack a case in the break. You know, when uh, you've done two hours of formal interview, finally the uh, somebody walks out, the guy's having a sandwich, you're having a sandwich with him and you're talking about maybe uh, football in Syracuse or something. And he suddenly says, hey, I want to really get it off my chest. You know, I paid the bribe. And this is how I've done it. That, that you'll miss. And that does happen. Honestly, that did happen quite often. And I think... On larger cases, more critical cases, I think you'll still have to do those in-person interactions, and I don't think that should be compromised. Uh, but I, as I was saying, it's the smaller mandates, less serious ones, less regulatory ones, I think you could quickly do through online uh, mechanisms. Out of curiosity, I have a question for you, Arpinder, because, you know, we've seen in the last probably 10 years in the U.S. a lot of FCPA investigations where there's an Indian component, where somebody, you know, the the ultimate bribe was paid in India. And that's there's been a lot of that. I'm curious if you have seen 
I don't know if a trend is the right word, but if you've seen that people who, you know, the bad actors who are going to continue paying bribes in India, regardless of what the company, you know, says and what their stance is on ethics and compliance, but have, are, are they becoming more sophisticated? In other words, have you found that it's more complicated the ways that money is, is passed for bribes and the way it's disguised on books and records, you know, from your side, from the investigation side, you know, what types of things are you looking for? And has that changed? Or is it still sort of the same mechanisms that bribes are that people are using to pay bribes? Actually, a few interesting changes we've seen, Chelsea. One is where, uh, you know, employees are paying bribes, like a CEO, for instance, we had a recent case, who potentially paid an irregular payment, and he paid it out of his own pocket. He didn't claim it back from the company, you know, but it was a big deal for him. And I think that that little bit of money obviously was nothing in comparison to the compensation or the incentives he was getting. And he just paid it. No one knew. It came out later on in the investigation. So I think that's one change we're getting where people are happy to pay something out of their own pocket. Number two is, I would say in India is happening where, you know, CSR, for instance, as I said, is I'm seeing an increasing trend where because CSR amount of money spent on CSR is increasing because of the new rule makes it mandatory and say that if you don't pay it, then you have to, uh, the certain clauses or conditions in six months, one year. Though, and there was also a criminal uh, liability attached to it till it was revoked recently and become more civil. So I think CSR is again, an, an, I'm seeing a lot more through potential risk through CSR. Third, I, I would say is still traditional. People still do the same old thing, you know, use third party vendors, third party agents, disguising their payments because you don't know the margin, right? In India, we you recognize revenue when you sell to a third party. You don't really track it. Or I know in America, for instance, you would recognize my, uh, revenue only when you send it on a secondary point of sale, but in India it's on primary point of sale. So that's a big difference. Some traditional facts, unfortunately, still remain the same. Even if you take that non-performing asset issue, which is happening in banks, it's still the same thing. People create related parties, they siphon money out on the purchase side, sales side. So unfortunately, we still catch, but what they become smarter in, is there no emails because law firms have done a great job of educating them that we will image your computer. So you will find very little on computers, but you'll find indications. You know, he talks a lot to one dealer or he talks a lot to one supplier, but you won't find, I find it's becoming more difficult to find a smoking gun on computers. I think if you have a cell phone, which is company owned, or you get custody of it through a chain of uh, consent form, for instance, it's a little controversial, but I think if you have a consent form, at least in India, you can get access to the cell phone. I think you get a little bit more on the cell phone, but people again are becoming very smart. They Before they come for an interview, they delete their WhatsApp, they delete their text messages. So even if you image the cell phone, you're not going to get much. People have started using Telegraph and there are many other similar technologies to WhatsApp to hide it. So I think people are becoming smarter on that. But the risk which is increasing, which people don't realize is now in smartphones, you can record conversations. And I find when you're talking to a third party, in 90% of the time, you can be rest assured if you're talking about a bribe, the guy on one side is recording the conversation. More is a CY. Why is he doing it? One is if tomorrow something blows up, he can use that audio recording. Or number two, it is to blackmail someone. Or third could be just he records every conversation of his because his phone does it. So we found crack so many cases now on audio recordings. So you image a computer and we first go to the audio recordings because we know that the guy may have some audio recordings on his computer. And we're finding that is a new pattern where people are recording conversations. And I think that is becoming more public. Even when we get whistleblower complaints, 
nowadays i'm seeing in india in the last three months where i get an audio file with the whistleblowing complaint so it will actually show you that hey here's the conversation i've had with the person you know so if you ask me we've got unfortunately we've lost access to emails and phones because people have become smarter but they've not been able to hide the audio recordings and i think people have also i think with the whistleblower complaints increasing people do come out with a lot more information and our pinder two uh, follow-ups on that and we've certainly seen the same I think, trends that you're describing in terms of audio, use of audio. On the use of electronic devices, have you seen a trend recognizing that people will use WhatsApp or Telegraph or other media for communication and that you really can only get access to those if you have access to the, to the person's cell phone? Are you seeing companies increasingly issue cell phones to employees so that they can, at least at some level, get access to, to those types of communications? Or is that something that you don't think is either happening or, or even should happen? Okay, my personal view is I think it should happen. A company with the right governance should give phones which they can use for you know company purposes to high-risk employees, which I mean uh, employees who are doing uh, significant government business, etc., or interaction with licensing agents. But unfortunately, Marcus, I don't see that happening. I think companies know the risks and they would rather not give the phones. So I, I think that's very unfortunate. But if you look at like stock exchanges or uh, investment brokers, all conversations are recorded. There's no reason why any com- conversation a, an, a corporate relations guy in India is having with the government should not be recorded or should not be done through a phone which is owned by the company. I would say my personal view is it's a great best practice. But unfortunately, some companies who may not want Sometimes the truth to come out or think it's a risk may avoid it. So I'm unfortunately not seeing that in India. In fact, I'm finding a bigger risk where they have to bring your own device. So we're even losing access to computers now because people have their own own devices, which you can't get access to. It's getting a little bit more complicated with data privacy laws. So that's interesting. So your perspective is not that companies are not issuing the devices because of cost or because of logistical hassles, but because, frankly, they they don't really want to have access to what could end up being damning evidence against their own employees that would, could implicate them. I feel in a lot of cases that's true. My personal view, as I said. I think cost for cell phones today, Marcus, is nothing. I mean, most telecom companies give phones free of cost. Uh, you know, reality is most companies are anyway reimbursing phone bills. The phone comes free of cost. There's no cost to it. So when they say it's cost, it's really an excuse. And just a second follow-up, you mentioned a couple times Arpinder CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. It's one of those terms that in some people's ears is relates to environmental responsibility or human rights issues. Um, one of the areas that we've focused on, in addition, obviously, to all of the anti-bribery, anti-corruption work is human trafficking. Actually, Chelsea and I teach a class at the University of Colorado. Here, That's a little plug for potential students to take the class, I guess, virtually or in person. We'll have to see how it all works out. Um, but we teach a law school class on FCPA and on human trafficking, forced labor, child labor, et cetera. Do, do you, when you refer to this law that requires payments from companies to support CSR efforts, from your vantage point, does that include efforts to try to stop forced labor, which again broadly includes traffic labor, child labor, indentured servitude, et cetera? Yes. So the uh, the government has defined what CSR is. So they've obviously said that you have to give the money to a registered non-government organization. Uh, obviously, depending on the NGO or government organization, you may have child labor 
or environment health and safety as one of the there are a lot of a lot of child labor is a serious issue in india right we know that there's a huge problem in the country around child labor so obviously there are a lot of ngos who would spend money on educating to reduce the impact of child labor so so it would include everything it really but the problem we i have with this is that most companies have very strong policies on the internal company requirements but when it comes to csr they most of the csr work in india happens through something called implementation partners so you have these small you know groups which which do it who really don't have the best policies don't have erp systems you can't really audit them they have one man shows you know across the country and the governance and auditing you do of csr implementation partners as i put it is very very weak and as a result though the intention is absolutely right but i i think it's it's a known fact that you know we did a survey recently and it said uh, 70% of the people don't know whether the money is actually reaching the right person or not you know it's an it's an interesting question right and there there's almost it's a legal question it's also moral or ethical question which is you know bribing people is bad we understand that that what what corruptive influence bribery can have on companies on on governments but human trafficking is a topic that is something that every hollywood star has an opinion on that every congressman whether republican or democrat in america or libertarian is against there are many many laws in the books against uh, human trafficking and yet the number of cases where we get a phone call to say hey please conduct a, a large investigation because we think we might have children or forced laborers working in an, in in a, in a in a business in a uh, manufacturing operation overseas is really it happens but it doesn't happen as much as frankly i i would have expected when i left the government and came to private practice are you seeing arpinder in in the indian context or in any other context that companies are treating uh, allegations of child labor, allegations of trafficking, and perhaps particularly in the manufacturing space, as seriously as allegations that someone gave someone uh, a bribe? My honest opinion is I don't see that much. You know, we actually, I can give you my own example that we set up a team for child labor audits. We disbanded the team about two years back because there was not enough work. So while I have a thousand people doing bribery and corruption and fraud investigations, I had a small team of five people who were environmental experts. They were experts on child labor because you need to be a specialist. You can't just investigate a child labor case without knowing, you know, is it 14-year-old kids or 14 to 18-year-old kids? You know, you have to check the teeth, for instance, to see the age of a child because that's the only true determinant. We actually didn't get it that much work because to your point, I think that one is I think there are not that many complaints for some reason. But I think people understand bribery and corruption and their bribery and com- corruption complaints which come to the surface. But I think child labor just doesn't come to the surface for some reason. Number number three is, I think most companies leave the onus to their, again, the outsource providers. There's some very ethical companies globally. I know some of them, I wouldn't want to mention a few and not mention a few, but I know some of them do do a lot of social, they call them social audits. Uh, uh, you know, at small little places making furniture or making textiles in India. And I know they do these child audits. But I think, again, it's very cost constrained. And I think they they try to do 10 audits a day. I, I mean, I'm a little skeptical about the, the, the audits done. And I think it's an area I agree with you. I'm surprised that even modern slavery, as, as we call that from the UK, you know, I find in India, very few companies have even said that, hey, let's look at the compliance to the Modern Slavery Act. I know there's a California regulation in the US around labor and uh, other things, but 
Unfortunately, that is not seen it. Even if you go to neighboring countries of India, like Bangladesh, others, I went to so many companies which do textile manufacturing. I think that when only when there's an incident, there's a fire or there is someone caught, suddenly everybody runs there. But proactively, I found it really surprising that none of them were even worried about it. Well, it seems to be an, an just simply incentive issue, an enforcement problem. I mean, if you look at the FCPA, the, the, the law sat dormant for decades. And similarly here, I think when Chelsea becomes attorney general and sets her enforcement priorities, trust me, when the first, you know, five large companies get tagged for these types of human rights violations, my guess is that you're going to get more calls and we're going to get more calls to help investigate those. And just a quick practitioner's tip, and I know this is an issue, you know, we talked about earlier privilege. One of the things we've seen is that a lot of these social audits that are conducted are conducted by vendors who do not have, who are not operating at attorney's direction. And so we've had a couple situations where they either misinterpreted the laws or created reports that were quite damning that were not in any way privileged. Basically, someone from HR reaches out and says, hey, can you conduct a, a social audit and then, and then a number of people swarm in and then produce a report and no attorney has ever seen it at the beginning, middle or end or, or directed it or asked for it. And that is a real danger. If you imagine doing that in the FCPA context, people you know, would go crazy if you just send a bunch of folks in just to look around and then de- deliver a report about whether the company committed an FCPA violation without having even a lawyer be involved at any point in the process. Not that lawyers are always so great, but that's just a little a little soapbox I get on every once in a while because I've seen it go wrong more often than I've seen it go right. And I think at some point there has to be a conversation with some of these vendors to make sure that their clients understand the risks that they take on when they just send these vendors in to conduct their social audits. But again, and I've worked with, you know, you, you guys at EY to try to develop some approaches to looking into child labor, forced labor in a more, in a more systemized fashion. But I agree with you, it, it, the momentum uh, it just isn't there and it won't be there until, you know, one or two big cases hit the newspapers, kind of like we remember uh, 2000, sort of 2003, 4, 5 that happened in the FCPA world. And then all of a sudden, the folks that you've done presentations to say, hey, remember that guy that came and told us about this forced labor? Maybe we should actually like call him back and, and take it seriously. Same thing we saw happen in the FCPA context. Okay, I'm off my little soapbox and I'll let you guys get back to regularly scheduled business. But you know, to be honest, just la- my last bit on that, I think Marcus, I fully agree with you because uh, child labor and uh, human trafficking or modern slavery as they call it, is a very serious issue, especially in the emerging markets. You know, where there's poverty, wherever there's gonna be poverty, there's slums, people are gonna be misused. And I think it's very important uh, uh, from a compliance perspective that companies which are large and hire these people, whether it's the agricultural fields or whether it's their factories, are complying. And if somebody has to ensure that the compliance is there, I think that's not there. Well, I know that we are well past our 20 to 30 minute mark on recording, uh, which is great. This has been a very good conversation, but I do want to make sure, Arpinder, if there are other topics that you think we, we should add to the conversation that we haven't covered, I want to give you a chance to raise those. Well, and Arpinder is one of the most fun guys to talk to, too. So I'll just throw that a little a little social plug for Arpinder because, you know, uh, when we're traveling, I always look forward to seeing him and having dinner and uh, and laughing. So it's it's great to talk with you. And I'm not surprised we've gone a little over. No, no, it's, it's always a pleasure, Chelsea and Marcus. I've always enjoyed our dinners and I, and I wish you'd come here again. In fact, last time we said you'll come home, but you, I think we unfortunately because of COVID, 
it hasn't happened i've just moved into a new home so i would be very proud to show it to you but uh, coming coming um, uh, back to this i think uh, technology chelsea uh, at least in india i'm seeing a change where there's these they call them the grc systems governance risk and compliance i think that's something which will become a bigger play in our lives from an audit perspective so for instance when we're doing fcp audits uh, most companies are now going to show us grc systems which include cyber could include it systems but will also include third party due diligence trainings policy and procedures fcpa bribery and corruption so i think you're going to see a change where companies are going to create these large grc or governance risk and compliance systems which will include bribery and corruption fraud risks cyber incidents and all other policy and procedures so i think at least in india i'm seeing a deflection towards that uh, everyone's trying to automate things uh, but the risk there is that you must as marcus said on background checks if you make everything automatic you will miss the small details people will learn how to manipulate the systems so i think it's very important to em- embrace technology but at the same time be aware of risks so i think our fraud risks are going to change because they're going to be fraud risks around technology which we have to factor into whatever work we are doing so i do think uh, the world is changing and i think technology is the one area which will uh, which will do it i think that's a, an excellent point and something that i know several of our clients are dealing with right now is how far can you automate the process versus having to still kind of talk about each report individually. So that's a a well-timed comment. (laughs) No, no, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I think that's all I have. Are Marcus and any other follow-up questions or are we good to wrap up here today? A couple hundred follow-up questions, (laughs) but uh, I know we're time constrained and Arpinder has been so kind uh, with his time. So I just want to thank you. It's great to see you again. Thanks for your insights and the candid conversation because it really uh, makes a difference. And I hope our listeners will will really benefit from having your on-the-ground experience uh, with these matters. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.